Section 37 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 6. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Expulsion of Jews from England, A.D. 1290, by Henry Hart Milman. Long persecuted in so-called Christian lands, the people without a country, the Jews, first appeared in England during the latter half of the 11th century, a colony, it is said, having been taken from Rouen to London by William the Conqueror. These first comers were, we are told, special favourites of William Rufus. Little is seen of them under Henry I, but in the reign of Stephen they are found established in most of the principal towns, but dwelling as a people apart, not being members of the state, but chattels of the king, and only to be meddled with, for good or for evil, at his bidding. Exempt from taxation and fines, they hoarded wealth, which the king might seize at his pleasure, though none of his subjects could touch it. The Jews' special capacity, in which Christians were forbidden by the church to employ themselves through fear of the sin of usury, was that of money-lender. In this status, the Jews remained without eventful history until the latter part of the twelfth century, when the crusading spirit had aroused a more intense hatred of the race. At the coronation of Richard I, 1189, certain of the Jews intruded among the spectators, causing a riot in which the Jewish quarter was plundered, and this violence was followed by a frenzy of persecution all over the land. A rumour spread that the Jews were accustomed to crucify a Christian boy at Easter, and this aroused the populace to fury against them. Murder and rapine prevailed in several places, 500 Jews, who were allowed to take refuge in the castle at York, were there besieged by the townsmen, in whom no offers of ransom could appease the thirst for blood. These avengers were led on by their own clergy, with the cry, Destroy the enemies of Christ! A rabbi addressed his countrymen, Men of Israel, it is better that we should die for our law than to fall into the power of those that hate it and our law prescribes that we may die by our own hands. Let us voluntarily render up our souls to our Creator. Then all but a few of them burned or buried their effects, and after setting fire to the castle in many places, the men cut the throats of their wives and children, and then their own. Richard I had special dealings with the Jews, the effectual results of which were more securely to bind them as crown chattels and to add to the royal emoluments. King John, well estimating the importance of the Jews as a source of revenue, began his reign by heaping favours upon them, which only made his subjects in general look upon them with more jealousy. Under Henry III, both the wealth of the Jews and the oppressions which laid exactions upon it increased, and during the half-century preceding their expulsion from the realm, their condition as shown by Milman, became more and more intolerable. 
Jewish history has a melancholy sameness, perpetual exactions, the means of enforcing them differing only in their degrees of cruelty. Under Henry the Third, the Parliament of England began, 1250, to consider that these extraordinary succours ought to at least to relieve the rest of the nation. They began to inquire into the king's resources from this quarter, and the king consented that one of the two justices of the Jews should be appointed by Parliament. But the barons thought more of easing themselves than of protecting the oppressed. In 1256 a demand of 8,000 marks was made, under pain of being transported, some at least of the most wealthy, to Ireland, and, lest they should withdraw their families into places of concealment, they were forbidden, under the penalty of outlawry and confiscation, to remove wife or child from their usual place of residence, for their wives and children were now liable to taxation as well as themselves. During the next three years, 60,000 marks more were levied. How, then, was it possible for any traffic, however lucrative, to endure such perpetual exactions. The reason must be found in the enormous interest of money, which seems to have been considered by no means immoderate, at 50%. Certain Oxford scholars thought themselves relieved by being constrained to pay only tuppence weekly on a debt of 20 shillings. In fact, the rivalry of more successful usurers seems to have afflicted the Jews more deeply than the exorbitant demands of the king. These were the Chaosini, Italian bankers, though named from the town of Cahors, employed by the Pope to collect his revenue. It was the practice of these persons, under the sanction of their principal, to lend money for three months without interest, but afterwards to receive five per cent monthly till the debt was discharged. The former device was to exempt them from the charge of usury. Henry III at one time attempted to expel this new swarm of locusts, but they asserted their authority from the Pope, and the monarch trembled. Nor were their own body always faithful to the Jews. A certain Abraham, who lived at Berkhamsted and Wallingford, with a beautiful wife who bore the heathen name of Flora, was accused of treating an image of the Virgin with most indecent contumely. He was sentenced to perpetual imprisonment, but released, on the intervention of Richard, Earl of Cornwall, on payment of 700 marks. He was a man, it would seem, of infamous character, for his brethren accused him of coining and offered 1,000 marks rather than that he should be released from prison. Richard refused the tempting bribe, because Abraham was his Jew. Abraham revenged himself by laying information of plots and conspiracies entered into by the whole people, and the more probable charge of concealment of their wealth from the rapacious hands of the king. This led to a strict and severe investigation of their property. At this investigation was present a wicked and merciless Jew, who rebuked the Christians for their tenderness to his brethren, and reproached the king's officers as gentle and effeminate. He gnashed his teeth, and, as each Jew appeared, declared that he could afford to pay twice as much as was exacted. Though he lied, he was useful in betraying their secret hordes to the king. 
the distresses of the king increased, and, as his parliament resolutely refused to maintain his extravagant expenditure, nothing remained but to drain still further the veins of the Jews. The office was delegated to Richard, Earl of Cornwall, his brother, whom from his wealth the king might consider possessed of some secret for accumulating riches from hidden sources. The rabbi Elias was deputed to wait on the prince, expressing the unanimous determination of all the Jews to quit the country rather than submit to further burdens. Their trade was ruined by the Chaosini, the Pope's merchants, the Jews dared not call them usurers, who heaped up masses of gold by their money-lending. They could scarcely live on the miserable gains they now obtained. If their eyes were torn out and their bodies flayed, they could not give more. The old man fainted at the close of his speech, and was with difficulty revived. Their departure from the country was a vain boast, for whither should they go? The edicts of the King of France had closed that country against them, and the inhospitable world scarcely afforded a place of refuge. Earl Richard treated them with leniency, and accepted a small sum. But the next year the king renewed his demands. His declaration affected no disguise. It is dreadful to imagine the debts to which I am bound. By the face of God they amount to two hundred thousand marks. If I should say three hundred thousand, I should not go beyond the truth. Money I must have, from any place, from any person, or by any means. The king's acts display as little dignity as his proclamation. He actually sold or mortgaged to his brother Richard all the Jews in the realm for five thousand marks, giving him full power over their property and persons. Our records still preserve the terms of this extraordinary bargain and sale. Popular opinion, which in the worst times is some restraint upon the arbitrary oppression of kings, in this case would rather applaud the utmost barbarity of the monarch than commiserate the wretchedness of the victims. For a new tale of the crucifixion of a Christian child, called Hugh of Lincoln, was now spreading horror throughout the country. The fact was confirmed by a solemn trial and the conviction and execution of the criminals. It was proved, according to the mode of proof in those days, that the child had been stolen, fattened on bread and milk for ten days, and crucified with all the cruelties and insults of Christ's passion, in the presence of all the Jews in England, summoned to Lincoln for this especial purpose. A Jew of Lincoln sat in judgment as Pilate, but the earth could not endure to be an accomplice in the crime. It cast up the buried remains, and the affrighted criminals were obliged to throw the body into a well, where it was found by the mother. A great part of this story refutes itself, but among the ignorant and fanatic Jews there might be some who, exasperated by the constant repetition of this charge, might brood over it so long as at length to be tempted to its perpetration. I must not suppress the fearful vengeance wreaked on the supposed perpetrators of this all-execrated crime. The Jew into whose house the child, it was said, had gone to play, tempted by the promise of life and security from mutilation, made full confession, and threw the guilt upon his brethren. The king, indignant at this unauthorised covenant of mercy, 
ordered him to execution. The Jew, in his despair or frenzy, entered into a still more minute and terrible denunciation of all the Jews of the realm as consenting to the act. He was dragged, tied to a horse's tail, to the gallows. His body and his soul delivered to the demons of the air. Ninety-one Jews of Lincoln were sent to London as accomplices and thrown into dungeons. If some Christians felt pity for their sufferings, their rivals, the Chaosini, beheld them with dry eyes. The king's inquest declared all the Jews of the realm guilty of the crime. The mother made her appeal to the king. Eighteen of the richest and most eminent of the Lincoln Jews were hung on a new gallows. Twenty more were imprisoned in the tower, awaiting the same fate. But if the Jews of Lincoln were thus terribly chastised, the Church of Lincoln was enriched and made famous for centuries. The victim was canonised. Pilgrims crowded from all parts of the kingdom, even from foreign lands, to pay their devotions at the shrine, to witness and to receive benefit from the miracles which were wrought by the martyr of eight years old. How deeply this legend sank into the popular mind may be conceived from Chaucer's Prioress's tale. The rest of the reign of Henry III passed away with the same unmitigated oppressions of the Jews, which the Jews, no doubt, in some degree, revenged by their extortions from the people. The contest between the royal and ecclesiastical jurisdiction over the Jews was arranged by certain constitutions set forth by the king in council. By these laws, no Jew could reside in the kingdom but as king's serf. Service was to be performed in the synagogue in a low tone, so as not to offend the ears of Christians. The Jews were forbidden to have Christian nurses for their children. The other clauses were similar to those enacted in other countries, that the Jews should pay all dues to the parson. No Jew should eat or buy meat during Lent. All disputes on religion were forbidden. Sexual intercourse between Jews and Christians interdicted. No Jew might settle in any town where Jews were not accustomed to reside, without special license from the king. The barons' wars drew on, fatal to the Israelites, as compelling the king, by the hopeless state of his finances, to new extortions, and tempting the barons to plunder and even murder them as wickedly and unconstitutionally attached to the king. How they passed back from Richard of Cornwall into the king's jurisdiction as property appears not. It is not likely that the king redeemed the mortgage, but in 1261 they were again alienated to Prince Edward. The king's object was apparently by this and other gifts to withdraw the prince from his alliance with the barons. The justiciaries of the Jews are now in abeyance. The Chancellor of the Exchequer was to seal ale writs of Judaism an account to the attorneys of the prince for the amount. But this was not the worst of their sufferings, or the bitterest disgrace. The prince in his turn mortgaged them to certain of their dire enemies, the Chaosini, and the king ratified the assignment by his royal authority. But for this compulsory aid, wrung from them by violence, the Jews were treated by the barons as allies and accomplices of the king. When London at least her turbulent mayor and the populace, declared for the barons, 
When the Grand Justiciary, Hugh Le Dispenser, led the city bands to destroy the palaces of the King of the Romans at Westminster and Isleworth, threw the justices of the King's Bench and the barons of the Exchequer into prison, and seized the property of the foreign merchants, five hundred of the Jews, men, women and children, were apprehended and set apart, but not for security. Dispenser chose some of the richest in order to extort a ransom for his own people. The rest were plundered, stripped, murdered by the merciless rabble. Old men and babes plucked from their mother's breasts were pitilessly slaughtered. It was on Good Friday that one of the fiercest of the barons, Fitzjohn, put to death Cock ben Abraham, reputed to have been the wealthiest man in the kingdom, seized his property, but, fearful of the jealousy of the other barons, surrendered one half of the plunder to Leicester in order to secure his own portion. The Jews of other cities fared no better, were pillaged and then abandoned to the mob by the Earl of Gloucester. Many at Worcester were plundered and forced to submit to baptism by the Earl of Derby. At an earlier period, the Earl of Leicester, Simon de Montfort, had expelled them from the town of Leicester. They sought refuge in the domains of the Countess of Winchester. Robert Grotet, the wisest and best churchman of the day, then Archdeacon of Leicester, hardly permitted the Countess to harbour this accursed race. Their lives might be spared, but all further indulgence, especially acceptance of their ill-gotten wealth, would make her an accomplice in the wickedness of their usuries. After the Battle of Lewis, 1264, the king, with the advice of his barons, he was now a prisoner in their camp, issued a proclamation to the Lord Mayor and Sheriffs of London in favour of the Jews. Some had found refuge during the tumult and massacre in the Tower of London. They were permitted to return with their families to their homes. All ill usage or further molestation was prohibited under pain of death. Orders of the same kind were issued to Lincoln. Twenty-five citizens were named by the King and the Barons their special protectors, so also to Northampton. The King, Prince Edward was now at war with the Barons, who had the King in their power, revoked the grant of the Jews to his son. With that, the grant to the Chaosini, which had not expired, was cancelled. The justiciaries appointed by the prince to levy the tallage upon them were declared to have lost their authority. The Jews passed back to the property of the king. The king showed his power by annulling many debts and the interest due upon them to some of his faithful followers, avowedly in order to secure their attachment. It was now clearly for the king's interest that such profitable subjects should find we may not say justice, but something like restitution, which might enable them again to become profitable. The King in the Parliament, which commenced its sittings immediately after the Battle of Lewis, and continued till after the Battle of Evesham, August the 4th, 1265, restored the Jews to the same state in which they were before the Battle of Lewis. As to the Jews in London, the constable of the tower was to see not only that those who had taken refuge in the tower, but those who had fled to other places, were to return to their houses, which were to be restored, except such as had been granted away by the king, and even all their property which could be recovered from the king's enemies. 
excepting that some of the baron's troops, flying from the Battle of Evesham under the younger Simon de Montfort, broke open and plundered the synagogue at Lincoln, where they found much wealth and some excesses committed at Cambridge, the Jews had time to breathe. The king, enriched by the forfeited estates of the barons, spared the Jews. We only find a tallage of £1,000, with promise of exemption for three years, unless the king or his son should undertake a crusade. Their wrongs had, no doubt, sunk deep into the hearts of the Jews. It has been observed that oppression, which drives even wise men mad, may instigate fanatics to the wildest acts of frenzy. An incident at Oxford will illustrate this. Throughout these times the Jews still flourished, if they may be said to have flourished, at Oxford. In 1244, certain clerks of the university broke into the houses of the Jews and carried away enormous wealth. The magistrates seized and imprisoned some of the offenders. Grotet, as bishop of the diocese, Oxford was then in the diocese of Lincoln, commanded their release because there was no proof of felony against them. We hear nothing of restitution. The scholars might indeed hate the Jews, whose interest on loans was limited by Bishop Grotet to tuppence weekly in the pound, between 40 and 50 per cent. Probably the poor scholar's security was not over good. Later, the studies in the university are said to have been interrupted, the scholars being unable to redeem their books pledged to the Jews. Twenty-four years after the outbreak of the scholars, years of bitterness and spoliation and suffering, while the Chancellor and the whole body of the university were in solemn procession to the relics of St. Friswide, they were horror-struck by beholding a Jew rush forth, seize the cross which was borne before them, dash it to the ground, and trample upon it with the most furious contempt. The offender seems to have made his escape in the tumult, but his people suffered for his crime. Prince Edward was then at Oxford, and by the royal decree the Jews were imprisoned and forced, notwithstanding much artful delay on their part, to erect a beautiful cross of white marble, with an image of the Virgin and Child, gilt all over, in the area of Merton College, and to present to the proctors another cross of silver, to be borne at all future processions of the university. The Jews endeavoured to elude this penalty by making over their effects to other persons. The king empowered the sheriff to levy the fine on all their property. The last solemn act of Henry of Winchester was a statute of great importance. Complaints had arisen that the Jews, by purchase, or probably foreclosure of mortgage, might become possessed of all the rights of lords of manors, escheate wardships, even of presentation to churches. They might hold entire baronies with all their appurtenances. The whole was swept away by one remorseless clause. The act disqualified the Jews altogether from holding lands or even tenements, except the houses of which they were actually possessed, where they might only pull down and rebuild on the old foundations. All lands or manors were actually taken away. Those which they held by mortgage were to be restored to the Christian owners without any interest on such bonds. Henry almost died in the act of extortion. He had ordered the arrears of all charges to be peremptorily paid 
under pain of imprisonment. Such was the distress caused by this inexorable mandate that even the rival bankers, the Chaosini, and the friars themselves were moved to commiseration, though some complained that the wild outcries raised in the synagogue on this doleful occasion disturbed the devotion of the Christians in the neighbouring churches. The death of Henry released the Jews from this Egyptian bondage, but they changed their master, not their fortune. The first act of Edward's reign after his return from the Holy Land regulated the affairs of the Jews exactly in the same spirit. A new tallage was demanded, which was to extend to the women and children. The penalty of non-payment, even of arrears, was exile, not imprisonment. The defaulter was to proceed immediately to Dover with his wife and children, leaving his house and property to the use of the king. The execution of this edict was committed not to the ordinary civil authorities, but to an Irish bishop-elect and to two friars. This edict was followed up by the celebrated Act of Parliament concerning Judaism, the object of which seems to have been the same with the policy of Louis the Ninth of France, to force the Jews to abandon usury and to betake themselves to traffic, manufactures or the cultivation of land. It positively prohibited all usury and cancelled all debts on payment of the principal. No Jew might distress beyond the moiety of a Christian's land and goods. They were to wear their badge, a badge now of yellow, not white, and pay an Easter offering of threepence, men and women, to the king. They were permitted to practice merchandise or labour with their hands, and, some of them, it seems, were still addicted to husbandry, to hire farms for cultivation for fifteen years. On these terms they were assured of the royal protection. But manual labour and traffic were not sources sufficiently expeditious for the enterprising avarice of the Jews. Many of them, thus reduced, took again to a more unlawful and dangerous occupation, clipping and adulterating the coin. In one day, November the 17th, 1279, all the Jews in the kingdom were arrested. In London alone, 280 were executed after a full trial, many more in other parts of the kingdom. A vast quantity of clipped coin was found and confiscated to the king's use. The king granted their estates and forfeitures with lavish hand. But law, though merciless and probably not over-scrupulous in the investigation of crime, did not satisfy the popular passions which had been let loose by these wide and general accusations. The populace took the law into their own hands. Everywhere there was full license for plunder, and worse than plunder. The king was obliged to interpose. A writ was issued, addressed to the justiciaries who had presided at the trials for the adulteration of the coin, Peter of Pentester, Walter of Halin, John of Cobham, appointed justiciaries for the occasion. It recited that many Jews had been indicted and legally condemned to death and to the forfeiture of their goods and chattels, but that certain Christians, solely on account of religious differences, were raising up false and frivolous charges against men who had not been legally arraigned in order to extort money from them by fear. 
no Jew against whom a legal indictment had not been issued before May the 1st, 1280, was to be molested or subject to accusation. Those only arrested on grave suspicion before that time were to be put upon their trial. Jewish tradition attributes the final expulsion of the Jews to these charges, which the king, it avers, did not believe, yet was compelled to yield to popular clamour. But not all the statutes, nor public executions, nor the active preaching of the Dominican friars, who undertook to convert them if they were constrained to hear their sermons, the king's bailiffs, on the petition of the friars, were ordered to induce the Jews to become quiet, meek, and uncontentious hearers, could either alter the Jewish character, still patient of all evil, so that they could extort wealth, or suppress the still increasing clamour of public detestation, which demanded that the land should cast forth from its indignant bosom this irreclaimable race of rapacious infidels. Still worse, if we may trust a papal bull, the presence and intercourse of the Jews were dangerous to the religion of England. In the year 1286, the Pope, Honorius IV, addressed a bull to the Archbishop of Canterbury and his suffragans, rebuking them for the remissness of the clergy in not watching more closely the proceedings of the Jews. The Archbishop, indeed, had not been altogether so neglectful in the duty of persecution. The number and the splendour of the synagogues in London had moved the indignation, perhaps the jealousy, of Primate Peckham, he issued his monition to the Bishop of London to inhibit the building any more of these offensively sumptuous edifices and to compel the Jews to destroy those built within a prescribed time. The zeal of the Bishop of London, Robert de Gravesend, outran that of the Archbishop. He ordered them all to be levelled to the ground. The Archbishop, prevailed on by the urgent supplications of the Jews, graciously informed the Bishop that he might conscientiously allow one synagogue if that synagogue did not wound the eyes of pious Christians by its magnificence. But the bull of Honorius IV was something more than a stern condemnation of the usurious and extortionate practices of the Jews. It was a complaint of their progress, not merely in inducing Jewish converts to Christianity to apostatize back to Judaism, but of their not unsuccessful endeavours to tempt Christians to Judaism. These Jews lure them to their synagogues on the Sabbath. Are we to suppose that there was something splendid and attractive in the synagogue worship of the day? And in their friendly intercourse at common banquets, the souls of Christians, softened by wine and good eating and social enjoyment, are endangered, the Talmud of the Jews, which they still persist in studying, is especially denounced as full of abomination, falsehood and infidelity. The king at length listened to the public voice and the irrevocable edict of total expulsion from the realm was issued. Their whole property was seized at once and just money enough left to discharge their expenses to foreign lands, perhaps equally inhospitable. The 10th of October was the fatal day. The king benignantly allowed them till All Saints' Day, after which all who delayed were to be hanged without mercy. The king, in the execution of this barbarous proceeding, put on the appearance both of religion and moderation, 
safe conducts were to be granted to the seashore from all parts of the kingdom. The wardens of the sink ports were to provide shipping and receive the exiles with civility and kindness. The king expressed his intention of converting great part of his gains to pious uses, but the church looked in vain for the fulfilment of his vows. He issued orders that the Jews should be treated with kindness and courtesy on their journey to the seashore. But where the prince by his laws thus gave countenance to the worst passions of human nature, it was not likely that they would be suppressed by his proclamations. The Jews were pursued from the kingdom with every mark of popular triumph in their sufferings. One man, indeed, the master of a vessel at Queenborough, was punished for leaving a considerable number on the shore at the mouth of the river, when, as they prayed to him to rescue them from their perilous situation, he answered that they had better call on Moses, who had made them pass safe through the Red Sea, and sailing away with their remaining property, left them to their fate. The number of exiles is variously estimated at 15,060 and 16,511. All their property, debts, obligation, mortgages, is sheeted to the king. Yet some, even in those days, presumed to doubt whether the nation gained by the act of expulsion, and even ventured to assert that the public burdens on the Christians only became heavier and more intolerable. Catholics suffered in the place of the enemies of the cross of Christ. The loss to the crown was enormous. The convents made themselves masters of the valuable libraries of the Jews, one at Stanford, another at Oxford, from which the celebrated Roger Bacon is said to have derived great information, and long after the common people would dig in the places they had frequented in hopes of finding buried treasure. End of section 37